And I feel like I vaguely remember that. So while you're talking, I'm like Googling like, oh, that really happened? Oh, my gosh. Yep, two years ago, Nike has been quietly working with the boutique. Oh, yeah, I, I, I had to Google it. So hopefully our, our listeners will, will Google. Wow, that happened. I love it. You, my friend, are a work jerk. <laughs> no, I love that story. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we've been on a professional and personal journey together. We've made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun and even a few wins along the way. Our goal is to share our experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. We are back. It is episode seven. Can you believe we have successfully completed six other episodes? It's amazing. We are fast and furious in this podcast game. At this point, we're, I mean, this is a dynasty. I mean, we have done something consecutively, uh, which is a big deal for me. Not a big deal for you because you've done podcasts and all kind of stuff before. But hey, A, I want to start this podcast off by thanking you for your dedication to this project, for your editing skills. Shout out to Lord Alfred, who also is my brother-in-law for the track and just all the folks who have given us feedback, et cetera. It's been an amazing opportunity to share, unpack, and work through some potentially disastrous conversations. And we haven't got fired or divorced yet. So I think we're doing pretty well in terms of podcast performance. What do you think? Well, I think the big thing for me is that I know you've been writing for years. And so you have literally been filing away these articles that nobody's ever seen for the last 10 years. And this really is an effort for me just to start literally unpacking them file by file with you. So this podcast is like an audio version of my coming out party. I love it. (laughs) Exactly. So the file we're going to pull out of the drawer tonight is work jerks. Work jerks. We all know them. Some of us can't stand them and some of us are them. So work jerks, right? How do we deal with difficult people, dysfunctional teams, and what does it look like to be a peacekeeping, enemy-loving, grace-giving follower of Christ in a situation where you really just want to cuss somebody out, right? Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. I think that's the challenge we all face. Bringing our faith to the workplace requires um, a skill set of grace and patience and kindness that honestly... I haven't learned until recently because so long all that's been separate. So I love to unpack how do you deal with difficult people in the workplace, the work jerks that we all work with. And again, if you don't have a work jerk, you might be one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you're looking around the room trying to find him, it might be you. So how do you define a work jerk? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So um, one of my favorite business authors is a lady named Patty Azzarello. Uh, She was a very young uh, CEO for a number of different tech companies. And so her latest book, Move, which is, I bought at least 50 copies for teams all across the globe, but she has an entire section dedicated to like dealing with difficult people. So I love this. So I'm going to repurpose some of her definitions, but these are the four indicators that you are a work jerk or you're dealing with a work jerk. All right, you ready? These are basically the four types of work jerks. The first one is the brilliant butthole. One minute they are brilliant, and the next minute they are pissing everyone off. It goes back and forth forever. So they are genius. They 
They get things done, but they just piss everyone off in the process. Number two, the bully. We all know the bully. This person is doing important work, but is torturing their peers and subordinates along the way and damaging the entire team. The third type of work jerk is the person is checked out. They don't engage. They don't take ownership. Matter of fact, they don't do much of anything. You wonder why they're there, but they're so critical to your project. They're a jerk, not by what they do. They're a jerk because of what they don't do. And the last work jerk is the saboteur. This is the person, no matter what you say or do, this person is always trying to undermine you behind the scenes. They are uh, resistant. They are sabotaging your efforts. And I can honestly tell you I have dealt with each one of those four work jerks, successfully and unsuccessfully. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about how do you deal with those, um, not only the personalities and people, but also what is a positive response to dealing with them in your team, but also, you know, what has God called us to do as Christians and ministers of reconciliation to do it in a way that truly reflects God's love, not my temperament. Hmm. Well, thinking back to 20 years ago for us, you know, we're basically freshmen at our first job, if you will. Do you remember a specific story or a specific piece of advice you got about a work jerk? Yeah, I remember uh, this was early. This was the foot action days, right? You're coming out of college. I mean, you've learned academically how to get things done. And I've had a couple internships, but I didn't, you never really learn interpersonal skills of dealing with difficult people, which is a skill that you actually need your entire life. So there should be an entire course on dealing with difficult people. But I remember early on, right, I learned to weaponize my words because I was always taught people don't change, so you have to change them. And I was always taught to, to, be, to be the sledgehammer. And so I learned how to weaponize my words, and so I used emails as assault rifles. I could punish, injure, and pretty much maim you with the right set of words. And so I remember early on, I'm, I'm, talking, I'm young, I'm like 22, dude. I mean, I knew nothing about business, but I could write an email it made it sound like I was just like Bill Gates. I remember I was working with a vendor at a time and some things just fell apart in a deal. And he wrote an email and copied the CEO of the company, kind of blasting me and making some things that were outages on his part, making him look like, you know, it was it was my responsibility. Uh, uh, I went to lunch, uh, did a little stretch, came back to the keyboard. I eviscerated. I mean, eviscerated. It was the napalm of emails. I mean, yeah, he was a jerk, but you know what? At the end of the day, he didn't deserve to get fired, which is what happened. I sent the email to his boss, my boss and team, and ripped him up. And I remember getting a call from him. He was uh, driving home. He was in California. And he said, yeah, they, they let me go. I remember how low I felt, right? And so I dealt with this this exchange, right? This guy who had blamed me, which is, you know, like a jerk, like you didn't take responsibility for his outage. I responded in kind. I fought fire with fire. Not only did I burn myself because I didn't look that professional, that positive in that situation, but unfortunately, this guy lost his job. And so that's where, that's the first time I realized that, you know what, you know, that theology of I wish you would which is how I was kind of raised, like, I wish you would do something. That theology is wrong, and I can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Um, that was my first time I realized that my, my anger 
and response to jerks can actually be a liability because it it gives some it gives someone a seat at your table. You're opening a door to anger that could cause you to do things that are uncharacteristic. So that, that was an ugly time in my career. I'm not proud of it. Um, I'm sure he's fine now, hopefully. Um, but yeah, that was ugly, dude. All right. So if you could go back and do it all over again, what would you do? Gosh, if I could do it all over again, A, I wouldn't have sent the email. I would have picked up the phone. Emails are horrible for uh, crisis management. In fact, never pick up an email for anything that has anything to do with emotion or performance or feedback, A. But B, I would have worked through it with the guy. I mean, at the end of the day, we all really wanted the project to win. So does it matter who gets it done? I think we would have sat down as partners and peers to figure it out. And I think, um, unfortunately, though, when you're blinded by who gets credit, you're blinded by pride, you're bl- blinded by vanity, and when you want to be perceived as strong, all those attributes made me weak. And so I think I'd take a, take a step back, let it cool off, as my dad has taught me to do several times in, in my life when I've had hot moments flare up. Just let it cool off. Take a step back, take a day, then come back, call him, don't email, and work through it. And you know what? Even though it might have seemed as if he got over on me, if I didn't respond fire with fire... I think it would have been a much more positive way to learn forward and build a team versus breaking down a team member. Yeah. Where were you at um, a few years ago when you had some, you know, like relational drama at work? I can't remember. Were you at Patron yet uh, or were you still at Intuit? But, you know, 15 years later in your career, how did you handle that? Oh, man, all of it. I think the tipping point for me was probably Radio Shack. That's when... That was the first time I had to deal with work jerks in a new way because I realized, right, no matter what my title was or what my role was, you never outgrow work jerks. In fact, they come along with you. So until you start to uh, master the art of just dealing with people, influencing them, building bridges, building teams, you're going to continue to fail at that episode. It wasn't until Radio Shack, I think. We were going through some tough times, as you guys know, and listeners and Daryl, you know, Radio Shack, uh, you know, had some 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 tough quarters, some tough years, a tough decade, uh, I would say. And so I remember the response there was very different. I remember I realized the truth that there will always be jerks among us. Right. So being right didn't mean I had to attack people. And I remember taking a step back the first time I've never told the team this at Radio Shack. I would come early to the office and walk the floor, the marketing floor, I think it was the fifth floor to sixth floor in downtown Fourth, And I would actually pray for my coworkers. I would literally just walk the, the cube farm and just start to say prayers for like people. Because I think I took a step back and I could realize that this isn't just a job or a project. These are people's lives. They're taking care of their families, spouses, parents. You know, they got dreams just like I have dreams. And so... The thing we're arguing over, the budget, the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint slide, that's actually not what we're arguing about, right? It's power, it's control, it's authority. That was the first time, A, I realized how much I had to learn as a leader. So I realized my inadequacy, but I also realized that I think when I could give God the keys um, to to, to the front seat and let him drive... I think it created the atmosphere where I could be a peacemaker, which isn't a natural thing for me. I'm I'm always ready to kind of come in there with a grenade and 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 throw throw a few bows. I mean that's that's kind of my my style in, in some of those work situations. Yeah, man, that's good. Um, it's just cool to hear and see how much you've evolved. So today you're leading eighty people. 
you know, um, and that team is constantly growing and changing as you hire new people. You know, how are you preventing work jerks in your your team today? Yeah, you know, I think you have to foster an environment where you're role modeling the attributes that you want people uh, to take. I think for so many years, work jerks, right, have been um, tolerated because being a jerk at work actually worked. Like it was the person that got results, whether it's the bully, the saboteur, it's the, you know, the brilliant butthole, like they kind of got it done. I had, you know, seasons at like Intuit, for instance. I mean, Intuit is a academy company. Right? It's a it's a kind of company people go to to get training to go on to other places. So at Intuit in software uh, industry, I work with some of the most I mean, brilliant minds ever in business. I mean, these people had you know, like double Harvard degrees and Ivy League MBAs. I mean, and we had like these brightest minds working on these very specific software projects. I remember, but you know, there, there was a culture there with up and out where if you didn't if you didn't perform, you got out. And I remember there was a lot of people there who could like really, really push the buttons. And you could see that um, they were able to produce predictable results, but they were just bullies. And I remember thinking, I didn't want to be like that. So I spent a year, I was brought in to basically retrain an entire team. So I inherited a team who was doing one job. I had to train them to do a whole separate job. Uh, had to deal with, you know, laying people off, hiring a new team, budgets, and building a global practice as social media at the time. It was probably one of the hardest years of my career. I mean, I think I probably gained 20 pounds because all I did was sit at the office, eat at my desk, and work on PowerPoints. I remember I got to the end of the year, it was December, and I was beat. I took two weeks off, um, and we had done an employee engagement uh, survey, which is, you know, a lot of companies have the employee engagement performance where you get feedback on your leadership from your your teammates and you get a score and everybody sees it and you know it's like your scorecard for how good a leader you are. I didn't even bother opening the results. I left in December and came back in January. I was so exhausted. I was ready to quit the job. And I remember I came back in January from vacation, sitting with my my boss at the time, Mike Tui, great guy. Um, and he set me down. He was like, "Oh man, like first of all, congratulations. How'd you do it?" It's like, "What? What are you talking about?" So, yeah, dude, you had the highest like engagement scores in the entire marketing division. It's like, what? What are you talking about? So I had to act like I had to act like I knew. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I had no clue. I didn't even bother opening the results because I didn't care. Like I knew I had failed at transforming this team. I remember opening it, going back to my desk, opening the results, and as clear as day, I think it was like a ninety-five or ninety, like the highest employee engagement results in the entire marketing division. In a team that had the biggest amount of change. I remember, and I had done it the way that I didn't do 10, 15 years ago. So I learned how to build bridges, bring people into the kitchen with you during change, take feedback, even hard feedback, resolve conflict directly, have healthy debate, uh, role model the things that I want people to, I, all the things you do that are too hard to do as a leader, I didn't have time to do them, I actually took the time to do it. I remember driving home that night and I just pulled over, man. I just lost it. I just cried like on the side of the street because I'd spent a year trying to do this thing. And it felt like, you know, the battle wasn't over, but it was like, man, like this thing works. Like you can actually um, build a team and a career without being a jerk. And I remember that's the first time I saw the fruits of being a peacemaker and trying to build bridges. 
in a way that didn't tear people down. And I've tried to do that, you know, throughout my career, um, with varying levels of success. Um, but yeah, that was it, man. When just allowing, um, now I will say this though, the flip side of that is that's probably the most, um, the also learning too was this, I spent the most time on my knees. I prayed all the time because I was so much in a position and a posture where I couldn't depend on just my natural skill set or instinct because, you know, I was an emerging leader. I didn't have this, you know, 20 year career of leading difficult people. I had to do it daily. And so God had pushed, pushed me in that position, pushed me far enough from the shore where I, I couldn't I couldn't depend on my own navigation. I really had to learn to just follow him. Man. And it, it was an amazing experience. But I did learn how to trust. And so the work jerks weren't a barrier. They became an opportunity to just yeah. look like him. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You work with a lot of agencies and you can't control the culture of these agencies, right? So you're hiring these agencies for Patron based on the quality of their work or, or can they complete a certain task? Um, you're bringing new people to the table every time you bring a new agency. How do you handle jerks that don't work inside of your culture? Yeah, I think it's your job as a partner, especially in leadership position, to set the standard, right? And so even though they don't report to me, um, I don't have direct impact over their employment status. I've definitely had situations where I've had to set the standard through my actions and through my words. And so that if another person on that team um, got infected by my standard, they could call it out. And so I, I think that's the difference between a manager and a leader. I think a leader, through their actions, through their deeds, and their follow-through, they create a standard wherever they go. And so I, I could change the climate. And I was never like just a crazy client. I've, I remember into it, they they called me the velvet hammer. Because, you know, I walk in and like, I'm, I'm, I'm the funny guy. He's affable. Oh, yeah, he's cool. And like, you know, most of the time I'm the youngest leader uh, at my level in most of the companies I'm in. Um Although I'm getting older now, so like now, now, now I'm actually the old guy in a lot of my meetings. But um, they call me the Velvet Hammer because like one minute he's oh yeah it's cool, and you you, you almost take that you take that um, that laughable approachableness as kind of a weakness. But then when the time comes to you know throw a bow, <laughs> I can I can I can do that too. So they call me the Velvet Hammer. But I I, I remember um, with agencies I've definitely learned how to lead by example, but how to inspire other leaders and other teams to hold the standard. I can't be there the whole time, but it's, it's kind of that trust and verify kind of mechanism where, you know, like, you know, sheep beget sheep, leaders beget leaders. And if I could like have a, a team of people who all have that same mentality, even if they don't report to me or work directly for me, if they're a partner, I think it instills that same trust into teams, even when I'm not around. Well, I ask you about the agency stuff because I was on the other end of that at one point. Um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I showed up in ad week, not the way you showed up in ad week. I showed up in ad week in a way that you probably don't want to. And let me remind you of that story. So there was a article published about Nike and brand Jordan starting to look for other agencies outside of Wyden and Kennedy. And I read this article and I was like, starting to look, they use other agencies all the time. In fact, we're one of them. And this is truth because several months before that article even came out, we'd been working on several projects for Brand Jordan, but they had come through a publication that we'd been working with. 
And at that time, we were doing um, something around a sneaker launch. And basically, I reached out to Adweek and I was like, well, we've been working with Brand Jordan for years. And they were like, what? And so they, they called me and we did an interview and it showed up in <laughs> Adweek the following week. And I think it was digital at that time. I don't think it hit print. And I remember, dude, the emails and phone calls came with the quickness from Nike about things that I wasn't supposed to do, things I wasn't supposed to say. They they had never worked with me before. They didn't know me. And all of this came from one of the guys that was kind of like a mid-level manager at Brand Jordan. And I'll never forget this. The dude was a a-hole, man. And at first, I wanted to put him on blast, so I did that. When he sent the email saying, you know, we've never worked with you before, blah, 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 he was sending it to the my email. He already had my email. We had clearly worked together before. In fact, a couple weeks prior to that, we had exchanged creative ideas and what we were doing for this upcoming shoe launch and all these kind of things. But all of a sudden, he was trying to distance himself from me. And this will happen um, in your career. If you're listening to this and you're young, you're going to have this. Just like Adrian shared that story of the guy who tried to, to walk this thing backwards and rewrite history. Like, he's, he's trying to bully you, right? And so I put him on blast. And, you know, then basically everybody decided they wanted to lawyer up. And I pushed pause. And I just said, hey, in the best interest of our little advertising agency, we're not going to win this fight with Nike, right? And so I sent him an email and I said, hey, I'm sorry. We'll take your name off of the website and we'll do whatever we need to do to make it right. Um, We just want to serve you guys. And I remember going to play basketball the next morning thinking like everybody knows what's happened. Like everybody knows that, you know, um, I'm the idiot that got quoted in ad week and that the guys at Brand Jordan hate me. And the truth is, is that nobody knew, right? Nobody cared. Like, it didn't matter. And I'll never forget that. I got done playing basketball and I showered and I came to the office. And I was even afraid to open my email because I was like, "Ah, what's going to be the next, you know, negative thing that comes down the pipe? And when you really get this perspective of like, it's not that big a deal, right? The world is really big. There's a lot of things happening um, that you're not a part of. Again, we're the, we think we're the center of our own universe, right? So if it's happening to me, everybody knows about it. Dude, nobody knows about it. And to this day, this may be the first time you've ever even heard this story. And I, it's like I vaguely remember that. So while you're talking, I'm like Googling like, Oh, that really happened? Oh, my gosh. Yep, two years ago, Nike has been quietly working with the boutique. Eight, oh, yeah, I, I, I had to Google it. So hopefully our, our listeners will, will Google. Wow, that happened. I love it. You, my friend, are a work jerk. <laughs> no, I love that story. Yeah, man. Truth. So you, man, D.C., from brand side marketer, client marketer, real estate mogul, husband of the year. I mean, you, and I know some of your stories. So I just want to hear, man, you you not only have worked with jerks, you have successfully navigated long-term jerk situations in ways that you have had the patience that I don't think I would have had. So I know you've got... Some juicy tidbits. Uh, well, I think they can remain anonymous. It's yeah, okay. I was yeah. gonna say. I, I think for me, the 
when I think back to that first gig together that you and I had at Foot Action, I think embarrassingly enough, there were some moments just like you where I felt like I was possibly the work jerk. You know, at 22, 23 years old, um, I really didn't have a good handle on my my personality or how I, you know, I kind of came to life in the office, um, whether to your point, whether it was my emails or just even like my mouth, you know, um, I think I was pretty brash. We, we both always laugh about the meetings that you and I were in and, you know, senior level, (laughs) senior level executives were in these meetings asking me questions about my thoughts on things. And I, I was a mess, man. You know, like my response. I can confirm. I can confirm. I shudder. I I get embarrassed for you 20 years later at some of the things you said to like VPs and CMOs. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, I'm sure that they looked at me like, man, number one, how did this guy get in here? And number two, like, oh, that's like this sad little young guy, right? Like he needs help. He needs training. Um, but yeah, there were times when I think I was probably the work jerk, you know, and I, and I do need to confess that. I think the other thing is, is that what you alluded to was I, I, I did, you know, I worked at an agency for about 10 years and there were a lot of episodes of work jerks there. Um, and you know, some of those were day in and day out and they were, some of them were partnerships that I had to navigate and I had to try to learn from them. But I will tell you this, instead of a bad piece of advice, I'm going to tell you a good piece of advice. Yeah. So about seven or eight years ago, I reached out to uh, a guy that was in Richmond, Virginia. And I just said, Hey, I'm looking at making a move and I really could use a mentor to kind of walk me through some of this. And he didn't know me from Adam, but he was kind enough to open the door and he's been a mentor of mine for about seven years now. And one of the things that he taught me early on was he said, Hey, how much money did you lose in those bad partnerships? And I told him, and he said, Hey, how much would it have cost you to go to the University of Michigan to the business school? And, you know, I thought about it and I was like, you know, I don't know, 60 grand a year or so. And that's, that number is probably not even close. And he said, Well, hey, listen, if what you've learned gets turned into wisdom, consider that tuition. And I was like, okay. And so I've always held to that, you know, so there's been these moments where I've paid a lot of tuition and I say that because I have converted that into wisdom. You know, I look at the things that I I know today, the lessons that I've learned, the people that I will and will not partner with now, um, based on that tuition. And, uh, yeah, so that was a, a experience that gave good advice, right? Like I felt like I had lost so much financially, and really, I had just paid tuition. That's good, man. If what you learn gets turned into wisdom, consider that tuition. That is worth all of it. I, I love that because it, it. I think it reflects the reality of not only in business, but in our faith walks that, I mean, God never gave us a hall pass for worry-free living when we got baptized and tried to live for him. In fact, the Bible actually promises that we'll have trouble And I think the ability for you as a leader has been to learn from those mistakes. And yeah, it's, it's like paying it forward. I I, I love that. I love that. And I think, uh, I think you have lived that out though, because you have this fearless ability to start to like learn and iterate in a way where even work jerks don't deter you because you know you. Well, and I think life is too short, right? There's way 
too much on the line that I cannot spend energy. And we've talked about this before, right? Your brain is trying to keep you alive. Literally, it's using calories to keep you alive. And if I'm using calories to think about a drama with a work jerk, I'm wasting energy that I could be using somewhere else. And so in my mind, literally, if I've got a jerk in a situation, I just bypass them. Now, to your point, there are these moments where you have to pull the car over and deal with the work jerk directly. And we've talked about this often, you know, Enneagram speak as an eight conflict is communication. Communication is conflict for me. And so I have absolutely no problem going directly to that person. What I don't do today, 20 years later, is I don't use email. Um, we use Slack a lot. I would never use Slack for that. Um, it's you pick up the phone or you go knock on the door, you know, and you stand in the doorway and you have that conversation. And I think if I was looking back, I would tell myself, hey, D, listen, as you enter the workforce, there are going to be people that do not have your best interest in mind. And that's okay. What you've got to realize is, is you're going to have to navigate around them. Every once in a while, you're going to have to navigate through them, but do not use email to do that. Go directly to them to make, make it happen. Yeah, I uh, learned that too late, but no, I, it's funny. I, I reflect on, uh, did an informal uh, Instagram poll right before we, the recording of this session asking people, how do they deal with work jerks? Uh, number one answer, 55% of the respondents they work around it. Like, so you tolerate it. You find a way to work around the jerk, yeah. right? Uh, second most popular, 40% of people, they confront it, right? So you confront it directly. You go to the person. And 5% just ignore it. And, you know, I reflect. Uh, I had similar feedback um, as I reflect on kind of what you shared from, from your mentor. Remember this uh, business owner at, at, at our church here uh, was teaching one Sunday in a class. And I was, I was going through some things, you know, probably a team member or, you know, like, how do you get people, how do you take a team or a team member that's been underperforming and, like, inspire them? You know, because oftentimes, right, the bad advice I got, um, which I think was true for a certain time, it was hire slow, fire fast. So you hire real slow, you check references, you take months to get the right person in, you triple confirm it, you take 10,000 interviews, and then you fire fast. The second they kind of show that they aren't up to snuff, Get rid of them, right? And you cut bait, and you get the rock star that you intended to hire. And I remember this um, guy confronted me and just said, dude, what would it look like if you contended for your team? Not contend against your team. What, what would it take for you to fight for your team member? Have you ever considered what they're going through and what that looks like? And what would it mean as a follower of Christ to fight along with them? I was like, oh, A, I didn't want to hear it because I'd already decided, like, I, 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 I didn't even remember what the situation was, but I kind of wanted to move on, right? I kind of wanted to terminate or whatever it was. I remember being so convicted that I needed to walk through that, right? I needed to live God-dependent uh, and really just kind of, like, go into it. And I remember walking with him. And since then, that was probably about, let's call it eight, eight to seven, eight years ago, I've learned to, like, walk with my team. It doesn't always work out in, in, the, in the outcome that I desire. That ability to treat them as humans and have mercy and grace and patience and all these things that are in, not in any MBA course, they're not in any you know, Harvard executive education or anything, but it's true. Right? That ability to empathize and I think come alongside people, and it doesn't mean that they 
um, are, you know, uh, protected from performance or that you have to salvage their job, it doesn't mean that you treat them like adults and you walk through that as a person to a person versus a boss to a team member. Um, and that, that totally changed how I view. Well, and that's today, right? So 20 years ago, though, we're underneath all of these layers of leadership. And then as you start to rise in that you know, so-called ladder, you start to become peers with, I would say, more jerks than ever before. And you all are kind of vying for whatever that next level is, right? And so you're fighting for all these scraps. And it's almost like you're fighting in the workplace for this very small pie, whether it's your voice to be heard, whether it's your graphic to get printed, you know, whether it's your idea that makes it on the video, right? Like we're, and we all do this, right? We all want to speak in the meeting so that we're heard. I think that is the moment for me in my career where I saw the most work jerks is that it was people at my level. Once you get to a leadership position, you can navigate past them or to your point, like you can change culture, you can work with people, you can walk with your employees, that kind of stuff. But it's right in that muddy middle of your career where you're going to face the most work jerks. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, the kind of peer infighting. I honestly think because so much of traditional business uh, management theory, and it's worked, right? I mean, look at the performance of industry and and, uh, the American economy for sure. It's been tribal conflict, politics, backstabbing, bureaucracy. These are the tools of a passionate leader. Like, it's just called, it's a sport, right? These are just the sport of business. And this is how how we get things done. And we don't really care about the casualties along the way because we hit our number, we hit our profit target, we hit our sales goal, and and we all go out, you know, for a happy hour, and it's all good. And I think though this, and here's what I've learned too: when you live um, in true freedom, or you live God dependent, it will look like treason to those people. They'll be like, "Well, why aren't you fighting? Why aren't you working so as hard as I am? Why aren't you pushing?" No, you need to like, and they'll, and you'll feel weird, right? Because you're not fighting with your peers. You'll feel odd, like an outlier, because you aren't as outraged about the project. And you will feel so isolated. But I would like to encourage any listener that I think if you're trying to uphold that standard for yourself and for your family or for your future, I am a testament. Trust me when I say this. I have hard drives full of projects and files, and I have a a cabinet full of awards. I don't say that to brag. I say that as reality. Like, And none of it matters. The thing that matters most is the people, the relationships. None of that stuff I was fighting for matters a bit. The websites I launched, the campaigns, they're all gone. Like, Somebody got the job and they erased it. It's all so ephemeral, especially in marketing, as you and I know. I mean, so much of what we do is so ephemeral. The thing that lasts and is so most the most important is the relationships and your reputation, that ability to kind of be that light. I know it sounds so touchy-feely, and if I had talked to myself 20 years ago, I would have told me to get out of my way because that's not what it looks like. But I can tell you, man, it's not worth it's not worth it. It's, I mean, I spent the, the, the weeks and the months of stress. It's not, it's not worth it. Yeah. Okay, AP. That's great, but let's get specific. So it's 20 years ago, you're sitting in your cube at Foot Action, and the guy on the other side of the cube wall is literally a butthole. 
every day you've got to come in and deal with this guy. He he does weird things in the bathroom. He plays music too loud at the office. He heats up fish in the microwave and brings it back to his desk. And on top of that, every time he's in a meeting, he's either a Debbie Downer, he is negative Nancy. Like this guy is just a jerk. So 20 years later, what do you tell yourself? I tell young Adrian with the stinky guy who's always Debbie Downing, who is just the ultimate work jerk. I would tell myself to do this. Believe in the power of proximity. Get close to him. Uh, Right now, he's a jerk because you're viewing him as a problem, not a person. And when you get close to him and know his story, his background, doesn't mean you have to like him. It doesn't mean you have to agree with him, but you do have to accept him as a person, as a coworker, and a peer. And oftentimes, our, our own definition of who's a jerk at work is actually the biggest problem. And the second I can take off the label of him as a jerk, I can view him as, hey, that's just Daryl. He grew up in West Virginia. You know what? He likes wearing his hair like that. He talks funny. (laughs) He hugs everybody. But you know what? I love the heck out of that guy. I'm going to love him for 20 years, right? The second he goes from a problem to being a person, then it it all it all goes away. So I think we have to have that mm. ability. That proximity is there, though. Like the farther we are from people, the easier it is to judge. I think the second we step closer, take that step to him. Have a lunch, have a conversation after work. Go grab a drink, learn more about him. Um, I think it'll go so much farther in your projects, but it'll also show. I think that that proximity will build real relationship, which is where I think love. Um, where reconciliation truly happens. No, I think that's good. I I would just add to that that there's going to be these moments in your career where you get to make that decision, right? You get to make the decision of, do I send the email? Um, Do I put this person on blast? Do I talk about this person behind their back? I think that's another way that we can be work jerks, right? That person leaves the room, and when they leave the room, we're talking about them. Um, I think it's up to us to make that decision. And I wouldn't go back in time and tell myself, hey, D, you're going to have some key moments where you get to decide whether you send that email, whether you say that word, um, and I want you to make the right decision. And here's how you know how to make the right decision. Would you have that conversation with that person to their face? Would you um, say that thing about them to their face? Would you, you know, pick up the phone and call them about that as opposed to, you know, blasting out the email? Anything that you're not willing to have a face-to-face conversation about with someone in your office or your business, there's a good chance that you just need to shut your mouth and move on. I think you're right. And I think here's the deal, kind of building off that point, the reaction and the reality of Christians responding to work jerks, I often don't see that much of a difference. So when you like read the Bible, right, it's love your enemies, do and pursue good. It's being a minister of reconciliation, right? It's accepting peace as a gift, guard and guide your hearts, uh, guard your mouth, for out of it flows the wellspring of your heart. Uh, truth and love, all these things that the fruits of the spirit, like those, that's a Sunday sermon. But Monday through Friday, I got to be honest, man, most of my time, I don't want to hear that. And I think part of our warped worldview when it comes to working with jerks is because we've separated the sacred and the secular. So we've, we, and even though, you know, we're 
Bible believing uh, disciples, I think for a lot of us, especially for most of my life, especially in, in, in my career, I separated that out. So it was like the sacred was what I did for God in church and mission trips and all the all that. Yay, great. I'm saved. But then the the secular was my work and I separate those. And the reality is, I mean, that was never intended to be the case. And I look at coworkers who were um, Hindu, who were Muslim, who they, they don't even understand that concept. They, they bring their faith to work. Uh, they bring it, their whole self there. But and, and so I think for a lot of Christians, I think the struggle is because we separate our, our, our work and our faith. It creates an environment where our response to troubles or jerks or or enemies, quote unquote, is not in a faith perspective. It, it, oftentimes it's in a perspective of of our own. Mm, so good. Um, all right. So where I'm at today, I think my perspective has completely shifted. 20 years ago, if you worked with me and you left, you got a different job, you went to work at finish line instead of foot action, right? You went to another agency. Um, basically, I cut you off. I was done with you. I said, man, like this person is dead to me. Your, e- your email provider changed. I am no longer on your team. And I think for me, that is a form of being a work jerk, right? Even if you don't work with me anymore, right? I'm being a jerk um, because I'm not staying in a relationship with you. And I'm not saying like, hey, if you've left a situation that was bad because there were terrible people running the company and you don't have a relationship with them, that's fine. But what I'm talking about is somebody that was on your team or somebody that works for you and they take another job somewhere else. We should be cheering for them because I think so often what we do is we want people to be a part of our world because it helps us get to where we want to go. We're not cheering for them individually. So that's a question I would ask you is what is the difference between cheering for people because it's for my benefit versus cheering for somebody because it's a benefit for them? Yeah, I think that's great. I think it is a great uh, litmus test of the amount of selfishness you have as a leader, right? If you can't be happy for someone who's building their career, then I think if the measure of their value to you personally and professionally was what they could do for you, then I think you've already lost as a leader, right? You care more about the business outcome than the actual personal perspective. And I, and I've, I, and I've tried and I have situations where, you know, people have gone on to other companies. I've loved like 10 years later getting an email or a call from somebody uh, something that I forgot. Hey, you remember you gave me that chance to do that project? Or you hired me even though I was unqualified? And man, I mean, I'm just like broke down because you can see that those relationships matter. And so for me, I've always been about, I always champion people uh, no matter your email address, right? And if you're if you're uh, going to an opportunity that I couldn't give you, but the time with me prepared you, or I learned something from you, then that's a great value exchange, right? That's tuition, um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll take that. And I, I think we've got to um, decrease our work jerk quota by being able to see people as uh, valuable, um, as worthy outside of this, their jobs as just people. Yeah, that's a great, great point. All right. So we always talk about our book recommendations. What have you been reading that's helped to change your mindset? Yeah, you know what? I've uh, struggled immensely with this. So uh, I've got a, a lot of, I think, knowledge that I've picked up recently. So I'll give you one kind of um, former perspective and then one new school uh, resource that I've used. 
Um, in addition to obviously Patty Azzarello, I love her writing. She does a lot of good writing. She has a book called Move, which is the one I talked about earlier. But uh, Lead Like Jesus, it's a book by Ken Blanchard and Phil Hodges. Lead Like Jesus, it's lessons um, taking like Jesus's life, but breaking it down to actual practical business examples. I remember right into it, you know, when I had to build a team and, you know, reskill and upskill, et cetera. Not only was I like looking at academic resources, this was this book was my blueprint for building that team and for working with that culture to build a high performing team. So lead like it's a great example of I think taking just the simple truths of the Bible and applying them into how we deal with our coworkers, how we lead ourselves, and how we bring our head, our hearts, and our mind to work in a way that honors God. And I honestly, there aren't too many books like it. You go into a bookstore, there's an entire section of business books smart people, and there's an entire section of like books about Jesus, God, Christ, history, etc. And they don't really overlap. That Venn diagram is very, very small. So that's one of the few books that does it well. Uh, but most recently, I've been listening to, a, he's a pastor out of uh, Philadelphia, uh, Darius Daniels. And Darius is D-H-A-R-I-U-S. So Darius Daniels. Oh my gosh. Just like find his podcast, watch all of them. I've never seen someone with such a mastery of scripture, but he, the practicality of it is great. And I think one thing I've learned from him recently is this, if God is not using you to change the people at your job, then he's using the people at your job to change you. Ooh. And then, you know, your employee, Hey, it's it's true. That's back to the very beginning, right? Like if you can't find the work jerk in the room, it might be you. Yeah. Like, if there's something in you, right, and your, your, your employment is your deployment, it's your mission field. And I think we have a responsibility. And so I think um, part of our, our purpose in our job is, that, is to be that image bearer, to be that light. And I think it's so important that we don't become work jerks. And here's why. Um, your success always will trigger you as a target. So when you become successful, uh, family, work, life, et cetera, then you're going to trigger someone else's insecurities, always. And so oftentimes that work jerk, whether it's per- personal, professional, like sometimes it is personal because you've triggered an insecurity there. Like you shouldn't be able to get ahead like this. You're too young to do this. You're too black to do this. You're too white to do this. You're too this, right? And I think if we take the bait of offense, if we get pissed and we take the bait, then we've already ruined our witness. And so I think he's, his teachings have challenged me to see your job as a mission field, which we all say, but to really live it out, I think you've got to take a more practical approach to working through those things. And don't view your affliction or your um, injuries at work as just pains. I think there's purpose in those. And so just being patient about Right. If God is using me to change my job, greater his job is God using me, my job to change me. I think there, there's something there worth, worth unpacking. So Darius Daniels, all his stuff is amazing. No, that's good. I think what nobody tells you going into your first corporate job is that everybody's going to be different. People are going to come from different backgrounds. They're going to have different needs and wants. And so you're all coming to this office together for eight hours a day or this warehouse together for eight hours a day or this shoe store for eight hours a day, right? So you're bringing all of this together into one space for longer than you spend with anybody else, right? And so learning to navigate these relationships in these in these diverse places 
is so important for you as a believer because it really does show how you bring the the kingdom to earth, right? Like that this is the only way as James says that we get to put our our faith on display is through our work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's such a good reminder, man. I mean, don't don't um lower your standard. Don't use the tools of your environment to inflict uh injury or to protect yourself. I think, you know, if you truly are a believer, you have a higher supernatural source that you can lean on. But you've also like Jesus probably made a really good table. Like his chairs were level and he was probably an amazing carpenter and he probably borrowed tools and gave them back. Right. And so for me, like that should just be the the gold standard. So I, I not only should my 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 work as a marketing practitioner look good, but I should also lead in a way that honors that. I, I think you're right. And it's, it's both. And I think part of the um, challenge uh, with work jerks is. I think that ability to submit to the process of walking out, you know, correction or walking through people as an assignment as well. But and also don't be scared. Right. I mean, there are times when there's necessary endings. Right. It's just like it's time to call it. Right. Hey, performance is down like this. Performance is contagious. It's a threat to the team. And so being able to do that, but doing it in a way that honors them. Uh, that, that support them and is really still in the best interest of, of the team and that individual as well. And so, yeah, I think being a Christian doesn't, um, you know, uh, give you a hall pass, like I said, on a warrior free living or, you know, you, you get the uh, jerk free uh, life. But actually, it should mean that when you encounter a jerk, we should be counted on to be able to respond in a way that really honors our highest calling. Yeah, that's a, still, still working on that's it. That's actually a, a great third book recommendation. Uh, Dr. Henry Cloud, Necessary Endings. If you have not read that, it's a must. Um, he actually talks about pretty clearly about how to deal with people. And for the most part, you can deal with about everybody. And he gives examples on that. But there are a few people that he says you need to get uh, guns, money, and lawyers for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love his book. It's a, gr- a simple way to say like, hey, is this working? Yes, no. Is it that they can't do it or they won't do it, right? And like just breaking it down and like, hey, if you know, at the end of the day, you got to do what you got to do. But I think our ability to submit to the wisdom as well. And I will say this because one thing we both touched on, mentorship. I think the ability because right now, especially if you're working and you're gifting and you're calling, you're going to be working outside of your natural um, ability at times. Like the experience I need to draw on to be a really great leader oftentimes sits outside of my 20 years of marketing experience. The the ability you need to be a great uh, real estate entrepreneur, real estate broker, and and uh, building out your, your property portfolio, you need to draw on inspiration and uh, education outside of your experience. I think that ability to tap into people Right, who have uh, wisdom far outside of yours. I mean, like I said, that's tuition. I think that's such a key part of it in navigating work jerks because you can see the finish line uh, way down, way down ahead, and so you're not so subject to the day to day, like you know, trials and the day to day idiosyncrasies of people because you can see the long game. Yeah, and I think what you'll find is that most work jerks have a scarcity mentality. They're fighting over a pie that is so small. They're fighting over a kingdom that is so small. And when you really get a view of the big picture, when your eyes get open, you really start to see, man, it is a 
big wide world and there's so many options. A quick story. When we were at the beach a few years ago, some friends of ours, their little boy had this grave digger radio controlled car and it was loud and it roared and it, it was, I thought it was really cool, but Easton was super scared of it. And so anytime that this thing was driving around on the concrete around her, she was like, ah, and she freaked out. And so we walked with them out to the beach and this little boy drove his radio control car the whole time. And so Easton made me carry her. And so when we got out to the beach, uh, she would not get out of my arms because this little boy was still driving it on the sand. And I looked at her and I whispered and I said, it's going to be okay. It's a big ocean. Look around you. And she looked to the left and she looked to the right and you could see a sense of relief kind of flood over her. And I sat her down in the sand and she ran off. I think it's that perspective, right? That it's a big ocean. And so often, because we are spending so much of our time in one place, doing one thing, trying to achieve one goal, we forget that it's a big, wide ocean out there. And so sometimes we just need to reset our perspective and realize that at the end of the day, sometimes a lot of what we get dialed up and concerned about really doesn't matter at all. Yeah. How do you keep the first thing first, the main thing, the main thing? That's big. Yeah. yeah I love it. It's a big ocean. Well, the way that we would do that is seven habits of highly effective people. <laughs> yeah, man, this is still a classic for me. Seven habits of highly effective people. Stephen Covey. I try to read this about once a year as a way to sharpen my saw. I hope that's a reference to the inside. And my second recommendation is Stephen Pressfield, Do the Work. If you know me, you know that I'm a big Pressfield fan. Do the Work is so good. Um, It just says, shut up and do the work. And basically, I think that's my perspective a lot of times when it comes to dealing with work jerks. Um, If you're just, if you're doing the work and you have a perspective that things are much bigger than this little piece of pie in front of you, um, a lot of times it's pretty easy to navigate those word jerks in my mind. Pressfield is, man, he's a beast. I love his stuff. He'll punch you in the face in love, but definitely push you towards, I think, a higher Amen. purpose. So he's been punching me in the face for a few months. So no, I love it, man. No, I, I've enjoyed this conversation, I think. That's because we gotta get this that's cause we gotta get this book written. That's why he's punching you in the face. Yes. So unfollow is a precursor. We are setting the foundation. For um, I think you know what's new and next, man. So I I I think work jerks. Right, I think a lot of us ignore them, or whether you confront them. I think the main thing is to keep the end in mind. Think long term. Think about it's a big ocean. Like what are we fighting mm-hmm. about? What's the most important? Most of the time, it's the people, not the project, and being able to move forward in wisdom and in patience, but also be decisive uh, as well, especially if you're early in your career. I think sometimes you don't have the, the options to pick and choose projects and partners, et cetera. So you got to be smart about it. Mm-hmm. And if you work with Daryl and you would say he's the work jerk, feel free to drop us a comment, uh, <laughs> drop us a note on Unfollow Podcast because we want to hear Daryl work jerk stories. There's a good chance that the uh, email address will come from my current employer. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I, you know, I really think at the end of the day that we have a specific calling, right? And we've been saying this on just about every episode, and that is to be ministers of reconciliation. And oftentimes what that means is, is to reconcile a broken relationship, whether 
that has happened in the office or outside the office. And like I said, we spend eight hours a day or more in in the office or, you know, in the warehouse or in the distribution center, whatever that is. And so, man, to spend that much time and to not reconcile relationships, that's a failure of what we're called to do, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a big opportunity. So our place of employment oftentimes is our place of deployment. We're there for a reason. Uh, it's, mm. it's our field. It shouldn't be a battlefield. It should be a mission field. And I think as believers, we have to uh, trust God to put us in those positions where our insufficiency, our inadequacy, um, the difficult people, the uncertainty, all those are tools for God just to show up. And I think uh, as we can embrace that uncertainty, uh, it creates an opportunity for us to really look like him as well. But we can't do it if we're worried about being the smartest guy in the room or woman in the room. We can't do it if we're so convinced about our pride and our vanity that we can't humble ourselves to uh, the purpose of the team. And we won't be able to do it if we're not fixing our eyes on the larger journey and the larger prize, which is really not about most of the things we argue about. So that is a lesson I am still learning. So I am the uh, professor and the student at the same time. But yeah, no, it's a, it's an ongoing moving target. But I think it's so important because to your point, I think where we are is where we're, where we're going to be. I think our ability to do it at work is really the place where it all comes to life anyway. AP, man, that was so good. Like, honestly, thanks for the wisdom on this one. I think I feel even at this point in my career, armored up for work jerks. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the reality, right? I think difficult people are people with difficult situations. And sometimes it's us. And I think our ability to move forward in love, patience, kindness, all these fruits that we pray about, I think it's our ability to bring them to work. Don't save them for Sunday. Bring them in Monday through Friday and be the leaders, be the ministers, be the supporters that we're called to be. So we can do this. We can deal with difficult people and situations. We can navigate dysfunction by giving up to a larger cause, and we can still be grace-giving, cheek-turning, enemy-loving guys at our jobs when we know it's not all about us. Thanks for this conversation, man. All right, man. Until next week. Peace. Hey guys, this is DC, and this was the Unfollow Podcast. We hope you like what you heard today. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts you can choose to subscribe to. But if you like this one, do us a favor and subscribe or share it with a friend. 